Heavenly Father, we thank you that you heard our prayer and you've sustained my voice. And yet even more importantly, Father, we long to hear you today. We are so grateful for this passage and we pray that you, our Father, by the power of your Spirit, would reveal your heart to us and help us to see what are the riches of the glory that awaits us. We pray this for our joy and for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So the last couple of years have not been the most encouraging, right? Just take a look at some screenshots from my RSS feed. Oh, not happening yet. We got Apocalypse right now. Two. Next one, Deja Poo, all over again. Two. Crypto scams. Now here is one of my favorite pro tips. If a girl in a hot bikini DMs you about crypto, ignore him. (laughs) I mean, you probably don't need a reminder of recent discouraging disappointments, right? Trump, Biden, Djokovic, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Lebanon, koalas, financial insecurity, domestic abuse, war, genocide. And yeah, that list got about as dark as some predict the future will be. I mean, what is the next wave? Is it recession? Climate change? Biodiversity collapse? World War III? Now, predictions don't have the best rap at the moment. We don't like to talk about Bruno. No, no, no. (laughs) Right? Nor bogus Bitcoin predictions, Dogecoin to the moon. But as we sit in the uncertainty of the present, we ask questions like, will it get better? Will we get locked down again? Will there be jobs for me at the end of my degree? Will I ever be able to afford a house? Russia's invaded Ukraine. What happens next? Will China whatever Taiwan? As we face uncertainty and relentless disappointments, Maybe we are tempted to predict that the future is not only hopeless, but certainly hopeless. I mean, humans don't seem to, you know, stop being selfish, proud, power-hungry, sexist, racist, or just plain mean anytime soon. And then there's Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist who based his philosophy on what he called the firm foundation of unyielding despair. The happy guy that he was, right? This is what Bertrand Russell has to say about the future. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Sounds a little like the first two chapters of Zephaniah. Twice we've read that in the fire of God's jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. The future sometimes seems certainly hopeless. But what if the opposite were true? What if it were certain that beyond all the uncertainty and disappointment, the future was bursting with hope? What if you could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the future is as bright as the promises of God? I know somebody who loves watching sport, Soccer is his poison, but he just can't handle it. 
It's too tense for him. When his team is losing, he's screaming at the TV, saliva, sometimes tears. And when his team is winning, he's still freaking out. Maybe it could go bad at the very last moment. The only way my friend is allowed to watch the game now is by recording it first, finding out the final score, and then only if his team has won can he watch the game. Because then, if his team is down for a moment and all hope seems lost, he knows there's still hope. <laughs> Certain hope diffuses anxiety, defeats despair, lifts our courage, and leads us to sing. And certain hope is how Zephaniah ends, as we get a glimpse of heaven in a passage that moves from no shame in verse 11 to renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth in the final verse of Zephaniah. So, what will heaven look like? Today's talk is brought to you by three R's, remnant, rejoice, and relentless promises. Please keep your Bibles open to Zephaniah 3 verse 9 where we see the remnant who calls heaven home. After verse 8, where God declares his decision to consume the earth, to gather the nations and pour out his anger upon them, we saw verse 9 promises that other ending for all who call on the name of the Lord. It actually should shock us a little that God first promises hope for the nations. But only a verse later, God can't help himself from turning back to his special city. That city that we met at the start of chapter 3, which is just like Nineveh, only worse. God turns to his city and he promises his city that on that final day, verse 11, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Because for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. In the first section of Zephaniah, we saw that although the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, God's anger is slow, rational, fair, aimed at ending evil. And now we finally see that the anger of God does produce righteousness. In fact, another part of the Bible tells us that our certain future hope is a new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And only righteousness will dwell in this city because here God promises that he will remove the proudly exultant ones. As we read yesterday, if the humble are to be lifted up, the proud must fall, the exultant must be removed. On that final day, God will not allow his heaven to be held hostage by hell. There will be no heaven with a little bit of hell in it, no joy with a little sorrow, no pleasure with a little pain, no humility with a little pride. Everyone who rejects God and chooses the proud path of loving self before loving God and others will be removed. On that day, when Jesus finally returns, we'll all be seen for who we really are will be judged on our identity, on an identity that we've chosen, not our gender identity or our ethnic identity or our class identity, whether we were privileged at birth or we earned our way up with whatever gifts we were given. No, we will all be judged on whether we are humble or proud, whether we are part of the proudly 
exultant who will be removed or whether we are part of the people that God will leave in verse 12. A people humble and lowly. And let's be very clear. The defining factor between pride and humility is not how many good things we've done or whether we're good people or bad people because we have all been bad. We have all been citizens of that rebellious city, whether Nineveh or Jerusalem. We've all been proud. We've all done rebellious deeds by which we've rebelled against our creator. No, the defining factor between pride and humility is whether we do what the humble do there in verse 12. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Friends, have have you sought refuge in the name of the Lord? Have you asked for God's forgiveness that the Lord Jesus bought for you in the place that he's offered where the fire has fallen? Are you part of this humble and lowly people? Please do not leave this conference without being very clear. Because heaven is at stake. And only the humble remnant will call heaven home. So please choose life, choose humility, and be hidden. Seek refuge in the name of the Lord, because only the humble will be radically transformed. Look at verse 13. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Do you notice that this verse 13 tells us twice that our speech will change? No lies, no deceitful tongue. This is the big change that began in verse 9 when God promised that he would change the speech of the peoples. There's been a lot of talk in this book of Zephaniah. It's a loud book. There's crying and wailing, swearing to false gods, taunting God's special people and making boasts against their territory, saying in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil, saying in her heart, I am, and there's no one else. But now in heaven, everything changes. There will be no more injustice. Nobody to be afraid of, as everyone who remains from all peoples calls on the name of the Lord, as this special city is filled with the humble who tell no lies. Can you imagine doing no injustice, speaking never a lie? Can you imagine never struggling with lust again, never feeling tempted to click that link, or take a second look, never struggling with anger, never blowing a fuse or grumbling grumpy, never hurting anyone else ever again, never being afraid again. Do you know what the most frequent command in the Bible is? Don't be afraid, which tells you there's a lot to be afraid about, right? But in that day, in that place of certain hope, the remnant will never be afraid of anyone or anything ever again. And we will lie down. We will rest in perfect peace forever and ever. It's hard to imagine. No, John Lennon, it's not easy if you try. It's hard to imagine that big a change happening in my heart or in the world around me. It's like really hard. I found this meme. 
If you can do all this with a potato, think of all that God can do with you. And that is great. I like that. But we need more than a potato meme, friends, to help us imagine heaven. In fact, in the New Testament, did you know, the Apostle Paul prays that God himself would give us his powerful spirit. Do you know why? To help us imagine heaven. Paul asked God to give us his spirit so that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Have you ever prayed this prayer for yourself or for others, for your friends, that God would help you imagine rightly his heaven? That the eyes of our hearts, your imagination would be enlightened so that you can know, like really understand what are the riches of our hope. Resting free from fear doing no injustice, speaking no lies. Speaking no lies, but singing. We're a point to rejoice. Look with me at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So heaven hasn't always had the best rap in pop culture. I haven't seen the show The Good Place, maybe some of you had, but its title, I think its title comes from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, where Huck is told about the good old place by a dreary old Christian. Now she'd got a start and she went on and told me all about The Good Place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it, but I never said so. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. And I was glad about that, because I wanted him and me to be together. <laughs> now, if Christians ever give the idea that heaven will be as boring as that good place, then we have missed what makes heaven so good in the beauty of the last few verses and in this command to party. I mean, who doesn't love a command to party? Of course heaven will be filled with singing of the song of celebration, of shouting and rejoicing and exulting with all of our hearts. God's special people have always celebrated with song. In fact, did you know that one of the earliest historical documents outside the New Testament that speaks about Christians is a letter from the first century which describes Christians as people who meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. And the Bible is full of singing. Anyone want to call out some places where they can remember where singing is in the Bible? Ephesians? What happens in Ephesians? Yeah, we're commanded to sing. What a cool command. Yeah. Where else do people sing in the Bible? Yeah. Yes, standing at the side of the Red Sea at the moment of salvation, they sing tambourines and circle dances, apparently. Wow. Psalms. What other religion has a whole book in its Bible of songs? Anywhere else? 
1 Samuel? What happens in Samuel? Hannah has a, yes, Hannah has a song. Mary has a song. Deborah has a song. The ladies are killing it. Yeah. Yes, David danced before the Lord. Paul and Barnabas sing in prison because our God is a God who sings. In fact, in the Bible, I learned this while I was preparing for this sermon, every person in the Trinity sings. In Hebrews, we are told that God the Son sings. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. In Ephesians, we're told that God the Spirit gives us songs. That verse we mentioned before. As we are filled with the Spirit, we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. And in just a few verses, we're going to see God the Father singing over us. God sings, and God's special people have always celebrated with song. COVID made singing especially hard, didn't it? You should be able to walk into any church, any Sunday, anywhere in the world, and expect singing. Not only because it's like awesome, but because God uses songs to teach us, to teach us how not to get distracted. Because singing is like the opposite of distraction. As we focus our hearts and minds and voices together, all together, leaving behind stray thoughts and random notifications. You don't usually see people checking Facebook when they are singing. One songwriter said, words make you think a thought. Music makes you feel a feeling. And a song makes you feel a thought. And God has given us songs to teach our hearts and minds to bring our whole body thoughts and feelings and voice into alignment to help us feel what we should when it comes to the great truths, to help us celebrate thoughts like heaven. And these verses from verses 15 to 17 give us plenty to sing about. Do you feel how good it is that the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, that he's cleared away your enemies, do you feel something of how amazing it is that God wants to be with us? As both verse 15 and 17 tell us, the Lord is in your midst. And we know that the Lord is with us in a way that Zephaniah's first hearers could never imagine. That God the creator would become a baby one of us, to face our fears even to the point of death and to conquer them in his resurrection, and that he would pour himself out into us and give us his spirit so that we will never again fear evil because we know that if he gave his son for us and if he gave his spirit for us, then he will give himself to us one day and we will be with him forever and ever. When it comes to certain hope, when it comes to heaven, these verses give us so much to sing about, but nothing as beautiful as the climax that comes in verse 17. But before we come to verse 17, I want to tell you about my sweet stash. Now, I wonder how often you think about heaven. 
how often do you think about certain hope? I don't think we do it often enough, friends. I'm ashamed to say that I distract myself with entertainment far more than I think, far more than I sing about heaven. But over the last few years, my family's faced a range of sufferings. And as we face them, I found myself thinking about heaven far more than ever before. And as I thought about heaven, God has shown me some beautiful truths in the Bible about his heaven. And I've written them down in a note on my phone that I call my sweet stash. And when life gets bitter and there's suffering and there isn't much to sing about when I look around me, I come back to my sweet stash to help me remember. If you haven't already, maybe you should make a note like that on your phone, your own sweet stash of truths to celebrate about heaven, truths to help you celebrate and keep in focus certain hope. And before we come to verse 17, I want to just open my sweet stash for you and share a little bit with you. And if you've got a note on your phone to capture some beautiful truths, verses to memorize, buckets of promises, or if you want to start, why not start with some of these and include some of these truths that help me celebrate certain hope. In Revelation 21, certain hope is pictured as a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and there will be no more night. You know, we often think about what heaven will be like, what will be in heaven. But today in Zephaniah, as it starts, and here in Revelation, we're told what heaven will not be like. Seven is an important number in the Bible, and here are seven things that heaven will not have. The first and the last are symbolic things, the chaotic sea and the fearful night. But in the middle, they are explained, and I celebrate that our certain hope We'll have no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain. The old order, gone, done away with. In Revelation 7, certain hope is pictured as a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. I celebrate the certainty that heaven will be full of a multitude that no one can number from all nations, a place where Russians and Ukrainians, Germans and Jews, indigenous and settlers of many languages will sing one song of salvation to our God. In 2 Timothy 2, certain hope is pictured as salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Friends, heaven isn't just plucking harps. Heaven is eternal glory, sharing the glory that should only belong to Jesus. Reigning with Jesus, sharing the rule of a new creation that should only belong to Jesus, but which he will share with us forever. In Luke 12, and this is one of my favorites, certain hope is pictured by Jesus as a master coming back from a wedding feast whose servants are commanded to be ready for him. 
and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Now that might need a little while to sink in, but basically Jesus is saying that when he, the master, returns, he will come again not to be served, but to dress himself for service and serve his servants. Heaven should be us serving him forever, but our God, our Jesus is forever the servant king. One poet, Brian Wren, he put it this way. Great God, in Christ you call our name and then receive us as your own, not through some merit, right, or claim, but by your gracious love alone. We strain to glimpse your mercy seat and find you kneeling at our feet. Then take the towel and break the bread and humble us and call us friends. Suffer and serve till all are fed and show how grandly love intends to work till all creation sings, to fill all worlds, to crown all things. Why? Why would God want to serve us forever till all creation sings? Because we turn back to Zephaniah 3.17. Certain hope is pictured as our God, who is at his very heart a God who sings. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God wants to be with us forever, to serve us, because he enjoys us. He loves us. Is this how you see God? Rejoicing, exalting, singing over you? Because if you are one of these humble people, God delights in you. He's not looking down at you angry, disappointed with your past failures, frustrated with your present problems, weighing up your good and your bad, hoping to catch you out. No, in Zephaniah, God's anger is in service of his delight. He wants to remove evil, turn it to good before he does, so that we will be free from fear and so that he can delight over you with a delight that will burst out into song forever and ever. You see, heaven is not a pleasure factory, but life with God, life with this God. And if you don't see God like this, full of joy for his humble people, then hear the echoes of this verse resound all about the Bible. Isaiah says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, which I think is a whole lot, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jeremiah, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. Jesus says in his famous parable of the prodigal son, 
who squandered his father's money and returns humiliated to beg for mercy. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Our God is a God who celebrates. Our God will celebrate over you forever and ever and ever and ever. Yes, we will enjoy heaven, but he will enjoy it more. Oh, we will party in heaven, but he will be the DJ. We will sing in heaven, but his song will sing over us all. And we can be certain about this hope. 100%. Because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on this God. The God who sings and whose joy is so great that he makes relentless promises in verses 18 to 20. A few weeks ago, my family were at this wedding. I was telling some of the staff about it before. Um, It was a really fun wedding. And as the bride processed down towards the groom in all of her beauty, my daughter looked at me and she said, Maybe I will get married one day. (laughs) And we watched, we watched as, you know, the bride and the groom who looked as good as they ever will, right? Like, this is peak. It's all downhill from here. (laughs) They are gazing at each other with love-struck eyes and a few little tears, you know, little sobs. Uh, And they are making promises, promises about their future. I will love you in sickness, or health. I will love you, richer or poorer. But here, do you see that God, he makes promises not to those who are at their best, but to those who are sick and poor, lame and outcast. And he promises that he will love them. Do you see the relentless I will promises? I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and the outcast. I will change their shame into praise. I will bring you in. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Friends, we can be certain about such a great hope because the God who delights in us relentlessly promises that one day he will restore our fortunes. And you know, this promise is all that Zephaniah's first hearers had. But we know just how much God was willing to pay to show us these promises proven. We know that in our Lord Jesus, God himself was willing to join the oppressed and the lame, to become an outcast. He, the king who came into our midst, came to his own people and loved them even as they rejected him. The night before he was betrayed, before all his disciples abandoned him, he sang a song before heading to the garden. And he wept in the garden so you could sing in his city. He cried on the cross so you could shout in his company. He breathed his last breath so you would know 
the depths of his delight in you. And God the Father restored his fortunes, raised him up before the eyes of his disciples as the first fruits of this promise to restore fortunes before our eyes so that we might be certain that our future is as bright as the promises of God. Ultimately, the book ends where it began. This word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah tells us who says the future will be this bright. Who says? Says the Lord who loved you to death and will delight over you in song forever. We've come to the conclusion and in a moment we are going to stand and sing. But as I finish, you know what's really challenged me? What challenges me most is that this command to sing, to party, it's given not to the humble in heaven, but to the humiliated in Jerusalem. Zephaniah's first hearers, they weren't in heaven yet, although God was promising them that if they were the humble, one day they would be. No, they were living in a city full of false worship, injustice, proud lies, beastly rulers as bad as Nineveh, surrounded on all four sides by nations boasting against their territory. If they just looked around them, there wasn't much to sing about. Maybe if you just look around you, I've spoken to some of you who are going through lots of suffering this weekend. Maybe if you look around you, maybe you don't feel like there's much to sing about. It's easy to be overwhelmed by disappointments in the present, and most of the time, I think we just distract ourselves away from those disappointments with another episode of Netflix or a quick computer game or a smartphone yawn as I pull out my smartphone and then you pull out your smartphone, and we all just distract each other away from real life. But in Zephaniah 3, God reaches right into our disappointments, and he promises certain hope. He promises a joy to endure for, just as Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him and has paved a path. God gives a glimpse into his heart, his own emotions of a slow anger and an eternal delight. Yet God reaches right into our world of disappointment and he gives us somewhere else to look than just around us. Something far better than distraction. He's given us a picture of his heaven. He has relentlessly promised us certain hope. And he commands his people to sing in the midst of sorrow so that they drive out distraction, so that they feel how good this truth is, and so that they shine audibly in a place where people speak proud and hopeless lies. God commands us to sing. This doesn't mean it's happy, clappy optimism. Sometimes we will sing through tears. But God does command us to sing because even in the midst of disappointments, we have a better song. In the Greek legends, there are stories of these creepy creatures called sirens who sing their song to lure ships off course and dash them on the rocks. The great hero Odysseus had a plan how to get past those sirens on his way home. Uh, his plan was to have his sailors who were rowing stuff their ears with wax 
and they tied him to the mast and left his ears free so he could hear the song, but he was restrained in his madness as they rode on by. And some people think that, think that is what Christians are like, stopping up our ears, restraining, maybe even repressing ourselves from the delights of the world. But there was another Greek hero who sought to pass the sirens, Jason and the Argonauts. And Jason had a different plan. When the sirens sang their song, he and his crew decided to sing even louder, a better song. Friends, as we come to the end of our weekend, Zephaniah leaves us with a far better song to sing, with certain hope for the humble remnant that really does change everything. We've seen the slow anger of God. We've seen his eternal delight burst forth in song. So let's rejoice and cling to his relentless promises. Let's not leave here distracted, stopping up our ears or restraining ourselves. Let us leave singing a better song of certain hope of the God who rejoices over us with gladness forever. It's time to sing, ladies and gentlemen. Let's stand.